0: 18. So Isaiah 1 in the pew Bible page 720. And uh, these two readings in Isaiah Isaiah 1 and then again uh, second reading in Luke 18 connect with our text in James 4, where the attitude of the people coming t- before their God in worship and in prayer. Uh, That is the issue in Isaiah. It's the issue in Luke, and it's the issue in James 4. So, the Word of God in Isaiah 1, we'll read the verses 1 through 20. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come before to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We turn now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, in the Pew Bible, page 1115. Luke 18, the verses 1 through 14 where the Lord Jesus has a couple of parables about prayer. And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, "'In a certain city there was a judge "'who neither feared God nor respected man. "'And there was a widow in that city "'who kept coming to Him and saying, "'Give me justice against my adversary.' "'For a while he refused.' Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, "'God, I thank you that I am not like other men.'" extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So far the reading of Scripture. Let's sing from Psalm 52 in preparation, continuing the series of sermons in that letter. We come to the fourth chapter in the Pew Bible, page 1290. And we'll be focusing on the verses 1 through 10 of chapter 4. So there's kind of a, a strong continuation from chapter 3 to chapter 4. As you remember from last time, James was writing about peace. Verse 18 of chapter 3, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In our text, he continues to uncover what the, the problem or the, the issue behind the lack of peace is. Chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have... Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. That's as far as we'll go this afternoon. In response to the preaching, we'll sing from Psalm 34, which has... Some of the same themes as this part of James, uh, seeking peace by not speaking ill of others and being righteous in the eyes of the Lord. We'll sing the stanzas 5, 6, 7, and 9. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, What kinds of things do you pray for? Are they the kinds of things that God wants you to pray for? And to go a level deeper, why do you pray for the things you pray? What motivates you to bring those particular matters to the living God to ask Him for some help? Have you ever pause to think about your motivation and when you do reflect on what it is that that drives you to pray to god for something in particular are you certain that the lord is pleased with your motive for as james presses on in our text with his exhortations about peace in the church these are the kinds of questions he puts to us? What thoughts, what desires are fueling your prayers? At the end of chapter 3, James addressed relationships and tensions in the church from the point of view of wisdom. Are we acting out of true, godly wisdom, he put before us, or are we acting out of a false, worldly, even demonic kind of wisdom? And now in our text… James tackles the same issue from the point of view of our prayers and what motivates our prayers. Are we asking from God the right things from the right motives? Or are we asking of God things from a sinful motive? In our hearts, do our desires line up with what God wants or is it just what we want? our text reveals that the way of peace in the church and everywhere else is to tune our hearts 100% to the frequency of the will of God. So I bring to you this word of the Lord, live in peace by totally submitting to God. Live in peace by totally submitting to God. We are to repent from evil prayers, And humbly offer godly prayers. Now, perhaps you're saying to yourself, what is the pastor talking about? Because James didn't even mention the word prayer once in our text in these 10 verses. And that's true. But look at what he does start talking about in verse 2. He says there, You do not have because you do not ask ask who? Ask God, of course. Well, asking God, that's just another way of talking about prayer. In fact, James spoke about that in chapter 1 verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So, this is James' way of speaking about prayer he continues in our text in the next verse verse 3 you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to receive it on your to spend it on your passions so back in chapter 1 James wove together wisdom and prayer that's in the early verses of chapter 1 he's doing that again at the end of 3 and beginning of chapter 4 only now he expands on those two themes last week we dealt with the wisdom expansion this week we're dealing with the prayer expansion. And in fact, there's a correlation between those two topics. At the end of chapter 3, James wrote about two kinds of wisdom, what we have been calling true wisdom versus false wisdom. And now in our text, James is writing about two kinds of prayers, prayer with evil motives and prayer that comes out of godly motives. The godly kind of prayer is described in verses 7 through 10. Particularly, verse 8 summarizes it. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Godly prayer. So, although James uses synonyms and expressions, he definitely has prayer on the brain uh, throughout our text. And specifically, he wants to make this point faulty prayer is the underlying cause of fights and quarrels. To say it differently, praying wrongly ends up breaking the peace in your home, in your family, in the workplace, in the church in all your relationships. Now, I don't think we very often make that connection ourselves, do we? We can understand what James wrote back in chapter 3, verse 14, that if we have bitter jealousy in our hearts and selfish ambition in our hearts that that's going to lead us to lash out at our neighbor, to be self-serving in our actions, to not care about our neighbor. We can understand that that level of corruption in our heart leads to difficulty and troubles with others, but how does my praying to God break down peace with my neighbor? I, I don't see the connection. I know my prayers are filled with many weaknesses and mistakes, but Isn't it true that the Lord Jesus sanctifies our prayers and makes them acceptable to God? Doesn't the Lord intercede for us? Besides, I never ask or pray for trouble in my relationships. I I don't ask for tension or difficulty in my marriage or with my kids or friends or church members. So how can my prayers create chaos? in my relationships. Well, says the Holy Spirit in our text, it's because our prayers, at least at times, have an evil starting point, point. and God doesn't answer evil prayers. James leads us to this conclusion by first saying in verse 1 that underneath our quarrels and fights <clears throat> is the fact that our passions are at war inside of us. That word for passions is the word for pleasures. That's uh, where we get our word hedonism from. It's not used too often in the Bible, but here it is. It's, It's got to do with pleasure, seeking our pleasure. Now, passion or desire would be a synonym for passion. That's related to pleasure, of course, because our basic human desire is to fulfill our own pleasures. Like what pleases us is what we're going to do. We seek to do what pleases us. And now, says James, it's the competing pleasures in our hearts that lie underneath disagreements, fights, quarrels, tensions, and end up disturbing the peace. James reasons this out in verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He starts off mentioning murder. This is the second time in his letter he's mentioned murder. He's going to mention it a third time in chapter 5 verse 6. And in each case, James is accusing, or at least holding out the possibility that the people he's writing to have actually been killing other people. In fact, the language in and around these verses is very, very strong. The word for quarrel is literally the word for war. So verse 1, what causes wars and what causes fights among you? It's a very unusual word to use if you're referring to quarrels and in fact nowhere else in the Bible does it is it used for quarrels it's always used for the physical real wars that we think of between armies some commentators on account of that think that James is speaking here about literal murder as well others think that James is speaking more metaphorically about murder And I wonder if we have to choose between the two. Could it be that there was actual murder in the churches to which James is writing? We shouldn't rule it out as, a, as an impossibility. Just think of the churches in our day, a so-called more civilized age. We already know of many cases of sexual abuse, sexual assault, rape, And I personally know of one church where a man actually murdered his wife, a Reformed church. So we should let the weight of what James is saying hit home. If we don't repent of the evil motives in our hearts, if we don't repent from seeking our personal ungodly pleasures All kinds of vile practices, James wrote about that at the end of chapter 3, all kinds of vile demonic practices are possible and there will be no peace. Because what happens when we don't get our pleasure fulfilled? When that is frustrated and we don't get what we want, we start lashing out, don't we? It could be in, in anything, bigger things, but it's usually in the small things, the common things, the everyday things that we, we have this, this selfish desire in our heart, this selfish pleasure, and if something gets in the way, we start lashing. If I want a quiet nap on the couch, but the kids are in the house because it's too cold or too wet to play outside or whatever, and they're making all kinds of noise, I get irritated, even ticked off, and I might go and yell at those kids because they're disturbing my nap, my pleasure. Or if I want to get on the computer to watch a video or play a game, but my sister's already on the computer, I get annoyed and start arguing with her that it's actually my turn. I called it first. And we get all up in our sibling's face. If I want to lose weight but keep putting on the COVID pounds, I get upset. And the next thing you know, I'm I'm finding fault with my spouse over some other issue and a fight breaks out because I'm actually ticked off that I'm gaining weight. Those things in our heart that we desire so much to have, when when those pleasures are not given to us, we react and our sinful nature will have us react badly, selfishly, feeling sorry for ourselves. I feel like I've been treated unfairly, I've been robbed, I've been hard done by, and I can get as mad as anything that I didn't get what I want, I didn't get what I deserve," I think to myself. Now there's two things about how our pleasures connect with our prayers that are wrong and need fixing. The first comes at the end of verse 2. James writes, you do not have because you do not ask. Though we have lots of pleasures, lots of things in our hearts, our sinful hearts that we desire, many times we never even think to ask God for them. And James has already told us in chapter 1 that every good gift… Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light. So, if we truly lack something good, all we have to do is ask our Heavenly Father. He's the one who gives good gifts. So, why is it that we don't pray for things like, uh, God, keep the kids quiet so I can have my nap, Lord, get my sister off the computer so I can play? Why don't we pray those things? because we instinctively know that those are not the kinds of gifts God has promised to give. God has not promised to grant us all our pleasures. He's promised to help us with our needs. So, that's one problem. There's another when it comes to our pleasure and our prayers. Verse 3, James continues, You ask... So now there's a prayer. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions, your pleasures. That word "wrongly" is a bit stronger than we tend to use the word "wrongly." It can be translated as "badly." It can also be translated as "evilly." That's why I chose that word in the the first point that our prayers can be evil in their motivation. So, in other words, James is not talking about a mistaken prayer, something we've, we've spoken hastily or without understanding what we're doing. No, he's talking here about a pattern of prayer. He says, you ask. That's kind of a repeated thing. You ask. It's a pattern that has a sinful evil motive underlying the requests. You ask evilly to spend what you ask for on your pleasure. So, understand this this well. You might be, I might be asking for the right thing, for good things, for gifts that God does promise, but we might be asking it for all the wrong reasons. It might be that you or I want to satisfy our own pleasure and that's why our prayers come back to us empty. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that God will not accept, God does not answer prayers that arise out of a sinful motive? We saw that in Jesus' parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee going to the temple to pray. The Pharisee addressed God in his pride, didn't he? He boasted to the Lord of all of his obedience. He he exalted himself. But, says Jesus at the end, he was the one who left the temple unjustified. That means unforgiven, prayer unanswered. Heaven's door stays closed to anyone who tries to come in in a spirit of arrogance. That was the lesson of that parable. Well, Isaiah said much the same of the Israelites in his day who were busy worshiping and praying to the Lord in the temple but who in their hearts had actually forsaken the Lord. He says that in 1 verse 4. They had forsaken the Lord. They were living like the people of Sodom. And you remember what they were like. The Israelites, God's people, the church, they didn't care about their neighbors. They thought very little about justice. They, they were there praying to God but their motives were evil. They wanted to indulge their pleasures. But listen to how the Lord rebukes them. Chapter 1, verse 15. When you spread out your hands, that's how they prayed. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen, says the Lord. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Doesn't that sound a lot like James in verses 7 through 10? So the plain teaching of the Bible is this, that if our prayers go up to God with evil motives, if they don't ascend from a heart that that loves and totally submits to the Lord, those prayers are not heard. That's what James means with his sharp rebuke in verse 4 of our text. You adulterous people, do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. He's addressing the church. You adulterous people. What does he mean by adulterous? Well, he means spiritually unfaithful. And when He speaks about friendship with the world, He's not talking about not having contact with unbelievers, and He's not saying we should never be friendly to non-Christians. This whole discussion of of how to relate to people in the world, that's not in view at all. He's talking about the attitude of the world, the the commitment that the world has that we are not to adopt that The question James is putting to us is, are we cozying up to the world's way of thinking, or are we cozying up to God's way of thinking? And if we are cozying up to the world, are we betraying God? Remember that Israel in the Old Testament and in the New is often likened to a bride and God to a husband. That's why James is is speaking of the church as an adulterous people, adulterous bride, you could say. Very much like Hosea the prophet, throughout most of his book, could liken Israel to a cheating wife, to a harlot. So James describes the church as a bride that's cheating on the Lord Jesus. Members of the church were embracing the wisdom of this world, The wisdom of demons they were giving selfish ambition and jealousy free reign in their hearts that's at the end of chapter three they were praying to god that's chapter four only now they were praying so that their pleasures could be satisfied Somehow or another, at least some church members were sliding backwards into a worldly way of thinking, a worldly way of acting. They had one foot in the church, but another foot in the world. They had become double-minded or double-souled, as James writes in verse 8. You'll remember from chapter 1, verse 8, that's something James has warned against. A person who is double-minded and, prays to God, should not expect anything from the Lord. The only answer is to repent, says James. That's pretty hard-hitting, isn't it? Have you ever stopped to consider whether you personally might be a spiritual adulterer? Could it be that our prayers go unanswered because we're asking from wrong, sinful motives? We pray to God for lots of good things. We pray to God, for example, to help us lose weight. We might even pray desperately about something like that, but why do we want to lose weight? What's the motive? To please God or to please ourselves? To to care for the temple of the Holy Spirit out of respect for God or because I want to look better in the mirror and I want to feel better about myself? Which prayer would God answer? Do you pray that God would change your spouse or your child or your parent? Change their attitude, change their behavior in some particular way? Why? Why do you want them to change? To make your life easier? To bring you happiness? Or so that that person will grow closer to the Lord and flourish in God's service. Which motive would be pleasing to the Lord? Do you ask God to receive a marriage partner? Do you ask God that you you and your spouse could become pregnant? These two are good gifts and belong to God's promises, but why? Why do you seek them? is it just to fulfill a longing within you to make your life complete a sense of emptiness you want to build a legacy for the future you want to alleviate your loneliness or are you thinking about fulfilling god's creation mandate are you thinking about honoring the lord by obeying his commandments and wanting to do those things for his glory And when God does not answer such a prayer, what is your response? Do you become bitter and angry? That would be a sure sign that the motive for the original prayer is to please yourself, wouldn't it? For if the motive was to please God and God says, I'm not going to grant you that particular gift, then you would humbly accept what God gives. What each of us has to do, beloved, is to pause and analyze our hearts below the surface of the, verb, the verbal prayers we offer, our thinking, our, our purpose in making these requests. And wherever we find something sinful below the surface, we have to repent. Self-centered prayers have to go out the window. And instead, we have to humble ourselves before the Lord and offer godly prayers that truly please the Lord. That's the way forward. That's the way to peace with our neighbor. Repentance is very much what James teaches in verses 8 through 10. He starts with words that remind us of Psalm 24, which we we sang at the beginning of the service. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Cleanse your hands. Well, that's the outer works that we do. That's sort of shorthand for the outer works that we do. Then he says, purify your hearts. Well, that's the inner thinking of our mind and soul. Mourn over your sin writes James. Have you ever done that, brothers and sisters, just to spend time, just you and the Lord, thinking about the ways that you have displeased the Lord, that you have fallen short, thinking about the sin of your hands but also of your heart, weeping over how offensive your heart and your ways are to God? Have you done that? Psalm 6, you know, we sang it this morning, I drenched my couch with weeping. It's, 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 It's good to do that once in a while. God has always wanted and claimed the hearts of His people as well as their actions. In other words, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Don't give allegiance to sin or Satan. Don't let love of yourself compete with love for God, but but submit yourself totally to the Lord. And do you realize that this is the way to peace in your marriage and your family, at work, school, and in church? When we have tension with another person, When there is a breakdown in a relationship, we tend to look, instinctively, we tend to look for fault in the other person. But the Holy Spirit through James is saying, check your own heart first and foremost. What's going on here? First remove the log from your own eye, as Christ taught us, and then the log may well be blocking my vision and creating difficulty with someone else. The log could be simply this, that my relationship with the Lord, it is not right. That could be the log. I thought it was well. I thought it was well with my soul, but it wasn't. That's what's so hard about this process, you see. We Christians, we profess faith in God. We look to Him, to the Lord Jesus, for forgiveness and salvation we, we, we do believe, and so we assume everything is just fine between God and us, but it, it may not be fine. It's easy to deceive ourselves. Sin is deceptive. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, and if we're not getting along with other people, especially if that's a pattern in our life, then the Bible is saying you've got a problem with God. You're not wholeheartedly committed to doing His will and wanting to please Him. Remember also that God is heavily invested in us. Not only did He send His Son to die for us, but He sent His Spirit to live in us, right in our hearts, right where all these sinful passions and pleasures sometimes run free inside of us. We're letting them run free. That's what James is is driving at in verse 5. Now the translation of this verse is disputed it's one of the hardest verses in the New Testament to to really understand accurately. One of the questions is that word spirit you'll see in the e s v the word spirit is in a small s so in in the Greek they don't use capital s and small s so sometimes you have to discern whether it's a reference to the Holy Spirit capital s or the human spirit small s and that's unclear to many scholars, but as far as I can make sense out of it, it seems to me that the best is to understand that as a reference to the Holy Spirit. The NIV has this in a footnote translated this way, do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit, capital S, He has caused to live in us, longs jealously… The Holy Spirit longs jealously for us. That makes a lot of sense if you look at the whole thing across the Scriptures. The Almighty God of heaven and earth, He has come to live in our sinful bodies. This is His temple. And He is jealous for us. He's our spiritual husband. We are His wife Christ is our groom, we are His bride, and He is jealous for us. He loves us with all of His heart. He proved it on the cross, and now He wants us to love Him back with all of our heart. That's why those sinful passions that we allow to war inside of us, the Lord is upset with that. He wants us to be devoted to Him wholeheartedly. But that is not easy, is it? It's even harder to love our sinful neighbor as ourselves. If it's, if it's hard to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, God who never does anything uh, sinful against us, it's even harder, harder to love our sinful neighbor. And it takes incredible concentration and willpower to sift through our personal motives, to take stock, and then to repent of, of the evil that might be in our motives to get rid of self-centered purposes and to desire only what pleases God and what's good for my neighbor. It's really, really hard to do that. So the question is natural. How can I then? How can I be a peacemaker with others when I can't even get my own sinful heart under control, when I keep defaulting to please myself? Is it even possible? Well, it's not possible for you and me in our own strength. But here comes the gospel, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, that's Scripture, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's how we can move the dial on this issue. We come to God with nothing, and we admit that we have no power or ability in ourselves to act on any of these things, to to get rid of self-centered motives, and to love my neighbor as myself. I can't do that. We come to Him with empty hands, and we plead upon His mercy, and then God fills us with that power, and He gives us that ability through the Spirit who lives in us. That's what grace means in this instance. Grace is whatever you need to do, whatever you need in order to do God's will. If we come to God and seek it in humility, if we submit our lives to His will and ask Him to help us obey His will, the Lord will happily give us what we need and more. Even if Satan himself confronts us, as James writes in verse 7, we can say to the devil himself in the name of the Lord, get out of here. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's not us scaring off the devil, but it's God scaring off the devil. The Spirit lives in us, and the evil spirit, Satan, cannot withstand him. This is why godly prayer is so critical to peace with our neighbors. It's only when we ask the Lord to help us obey His will, which includes loving our neighbor, that He will begin to work that in us. And whatever our shortcomings, God's grace abounds. He gives, says verse 6, He gives more grace. You've got to hang on to that verse, brothers and sisters. We, you should put that on, on the bottom of your computer screen. You hang it up in your pickup truck. Put it above your mirror. Think about that. All the day long, He gives us more grace. All we have to do is ask in humble faith, and the grace just keeps coming. This is incredible and wonderful news for us. We can pray, Lord, I have troubles seeing the the true motives of my heart, and the Lord will answer, well, I'll open your eyes. Keep looking, I'll open your eyes. Father, I have difficulty changing my desires to line up with your pleasure. Don't worry, my child, my spirit will transform your desires. You keep praying and you keep working. I'll transform you. Oh God, I'm so impatient. I'm, I'm self-centered, I'm vain. I think of myself first, before others. Please help me, O oh Lord. My child, I will certainly help you. I will make you more and more look like my only begotten son Jesus so that you begin to think of others before yourself, that you no longer care about your looks in front of other people, that you're willing to go the distance and beyond with your neighbor. I'll do that in you. Keep looking to me and keep working at it. Brothers and sisters, the gospel announces to us that the resources of our Lord and Savior are without end. His patience toward us is never exhausted. His initiative with us never stops. His generosity knows no limits. His willingness to forgive is always at hand. His love for us and commitment to us is boundless. So let's you and I submit to him with all our heart. Let's go to him with in humble prayer to seek that grace and watch it transform our lives including that relationship, those relationships with others. Lean on that promise. He will give grace. For the sake of Christ, he will always Give grace, even more grace. Amen. Let's sing together from Psalm.